today's STEM tip. Don't throw out that old plastic bottle. Repurpose it by turning it into an awesome terrarium. Just fill it with sand, pebbles, soil, and your favorite plant. It'll grow sealed right in its own ecosystem. Learn more at She Can STEM. A message from the Ad Council. talk show here on the Bethany Online Radio. Once again, your host, Drew Von Sayo, set to bring you the latest with your Pittsburgh Steelers, Pittsburgh Penguins, and Pittsburgh Pirates. Starting today with football, of course, the dreaded result yesterday against the Cincinnati Bengals, one that most Steelers fans did not anticipate. But even with the result, nobody anticipated the game to be as poor as it truly was. T.J. Watt ultimately ruled out. Alex Highsmith was ruled out, so Jameer Jones was making his NFL debut. Deontay Johnson did not play. We saw Juju Smith-Schuster leave the game with a rib injury. So the Steelers' defense and offense, for that matter, was thinned out a little bit, but that's irrelevant because they still should have been able to beat the Bengals. I don't care how much or how little depth the team has. The overall talent on the Steelers was far superior to to that of the Bengals. And to lose, and not only lose, but lose by 14 is just embarrassing. It's even more embarrassing the fact that the Steelers only put up 10 points the entire game. A touchdown on a shovel pass from Roethlisberger to Fryermuth, and then a field goal in the fourth quarter from Boswell. Yes, Boswell did miss a field goal attempt before he ultimately made that one. So even if you say hypothetically that counts, It's still a 24-13 game, and you've got to be able to find a way to put more than 13 points up against the Bengals. It's the same struggles that continued 
for the Steelers. Lightning game was poor. Najee Harris had 14 attempts for 40 yards. His longest was 20. So, again, he's struggling to get things going. The offensive line was atrocious. Ben Roethlisberger was atrocious. This was one of the worst games that he's had in recent memory, even going back to last season. Yes, he threw for 318 yards, but again, only one touchdown. He threw two picks, and it's just not good enough from him. It's the same struggles that we've seen now three weeks in a row from the Steelers' offense. You're not getting consistent play at the quarterback position. You can't run the football, and the offensive line just isn't blocking both in the pass game and the run game. I understand you have a rookie running back. I understand you have multiple rookies on the offensive line. But we're at the point where it's not an excuse anymore to say, oh, well, it's still early on in the season. No, because after this week against the Packers, you're a quarter of the way through the season. Not exactly a quarter because they added a, another game on at the end of the regular season, so now it's 17 instead of 16, but you're essentially a quarter of the way through your season. There's not time anymore to say, well, we can turn it around, give us one more week. That one more week is now. And whether it's Ben Roethlisberger stepping up and being a leader, whether it's Najee Harris getting his act together, or the offensive line realizing that their job is to block, something has to change because it's not going over well. And these struggles, they appear to be worse than what we thought. We knew the offensive line was going to be a question coming into the season with Dan Moore Jr. as one of the tackles. Kevin Dotson in his second season, what was he going to be like in terms of offensive line production? Was he going to replicate some of the success he had last year as a rookie? Kendrick Green, another rookie. You have Trey Turner, who is an experienced veteran, but in his first season with the team. And then at right tackle, you have Chooks Okorafor, who is about as good as Villanueva at this point. I mean, he's like a turnstile because he doesn't block anyone and it's a situation where you're allowing Ben Roethlisberger to get hit more often than he should be not that you ever want your quarterback getting hit but especially an older one like Ben Roethlisberger which is leading to a lot more errant throws of course Roethlisberger's decision making playing a part in that on its own without the offensive line making things even worse but Again, the struggles just continuing to pile up for the Steelers, continuing to have the same struggles over and over again. And then, of course, Najee Harris unable to get anything going, whether that's because of poor offensive line play, which I'm sure in part it is. I would say that that's most of the struggle for Najee Harris. But he may also have a hard time adapting to life as a professional football player of course even at an elite program like the university of alabama division one college football is a much easier game than the nfl and so there may still be a bit of that transition period for Najee harris but of course we can't continue to sit here and say well it's going to happen sooner or later it'll continue to get better because the truth is it's not getting better 
It's not changing. It's the same thing week in and week out, and it's not winning the Steelers football games. I understand there's a lot of youth in this team. They're trying to rebuild in a sense that they're getting younger while staying competitive. That is clearly not working right now. Matt Canada is apparently just recycling all of Randy Feekner's old plays from last season because I feel like I'm watching the same offense that the Steelers had in 2020 with bubble screens and short little dragon slants. I understand that they want Ben Roethlisberger to get rid of the ball quickly. But at the same time, though, you cannot continue to run the same plays, especially those that don't give you success, and somehow think that you're going to just magically turn it around and a three-yard slant is going to turn into a 56-yard touchdown pass. It's not going to work like that. And then the times that Ben Roethlisberger does take deep shots downfield, 25, 30 yards, he's not even close to being accurate. He's either overthrowing, underthrowing, or the ball sailing out of bounds. For instance, yesterday against the Bengals, he overthrew James Washington by about five yards. If he hits Washington in stride, there's nobody near James Washington. He walks into the end zone, and that could potentially build some momentum. Of course, because it didn't happen, the Steelers tried to make up for that, ultimately not being successful, and they didn't get any points on the board. So that's where Roethlisberger needs to really work on the accuracy because that has apparently fallen off. You're taking shots down the field very minimally, and then when you do, you're overthrowing the receiver by five yards. Arm strength may be a bit of an issue for Roethlisberger, but it's not as much as what we thought coming off of the elbow surgery. I understand it's two years now since he originally got hurt, but at the same time, if he's able to overthrow receivers 30, 35 yards downfield, then he's still capable of slinging the football. But it's the accuracy that's the problem. And it doesn't matter how strong of an arm you have, if you're not accurate, your arm's useless. And it's just going to be an uphill battle for the Steelers the rest of the season with these struggles because now they've got to find a way to make these changes, recognizing that the pressure is on them and understanding that every week they continue to screw up and every week they continue to drop another game. The pressure in terms of quantity exponentiates and so each game therefore becomes more and more important for the Steelers to win try to climb themselves out of the hole that they dug and if they can't then they're going to be in trouble it's going to be a tough battle as soon as this coming week against the Green Bay Packers you're going to Green Bay you're taking on Aaron Rodgers who is Arguably one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time. One of the greatest of this generation. And it's at Lambeau Field, which is already a difficult place to play for any team, much less a struggling Pittsburgh Steelers team. So you have all of those elements 
stacked on top of each other. I feel like the Steelers are already down seven points. But they've got to find a way to snap out of it. They've got to find a way to get the run game going. Ben Roethlisberger needs to be much more accurate. The offensive line needs to block, whether it's in the pass game or the run game. And they can't allow Roethlisberger to take as many hits as he has over the course of this season so far. And we're only three games in. But after seeing the way that Ben Roethlisberger played yesterday in that game against the Bengals, the way that he has played the first two games of the season, of course, this isn't a topic anyone wants to talk about. This is something that is going to be hard for Steelers fans to accept, both physically, mentally, and even emotionally. But I question now at this point whether or not Ben Roethlisberger has any career left in him. Of course, the Steelers are going to continue to send him out there this season. As much as I believe Mason Rudolph or Dwayne Haskins could not play any worse, the Steelers are not going to bench Ben Roethlisberger. The infatuation from Mike Tomlin all the way up to the Roonies for Big Ben is too much for them to bench him in favor of Mason Rudolph or Dwayne Haskins. Of course, Haskins doesn't even dress on game day, so it would ultimately be Rudolph. But they're not going to bench Ben Roethlisberger. So they're going to send him out there, try to die on that hill of giving him opportunities to be successful. And it may very well be painful for the fans because... If these first three games are any indication of how the season's going to go, the Steelers are going to walk out of it with six, maybe seven wins out of 17. It would be the first losing season with Ben Roethlisberger on the roster, which is going to be a bit of a shock, seeing as the last time the Steelers had a losing season, the following draft... They used their first-round pick to take Ben Roethlisberger. And so now you look at how Ben has performed these first three games, the way he fell off at the end of last season. Was that week 12 or week 13 game when the Steelers got win number 11, was that the last time we saw Ben Roethlisberger playing at a high-caliber level in the NFL? Was that the last time that we saw Ben Roethlisberger get appreciated by the fans and able to carry an offense and lead them down the field multiple times a game to score a touchdown? Is this Ben Roethlisberger that we're seeing now and the Ben Roethlisberger that we saw at the end of last season, is that what Ben Roethlisberger is now? Because if that is what he is, then there's no point in continuing to keep him on the roster. He's 39 years old. If that is the best you're going to get from him, then you have to simply move on and either turn the reins over to Dwayne Haskins or turn them over to Mason Rudolph. Rudolph, of course, expected to get the first crack at everything post-Ben, but 
again, that may be much sooner than anyone would have liked or anticipated, especially from the perspective of the fan base, because Ben Roethlisberger, the second that he stepped onto the field in place of Tommy Maddox, has been adored by this fan base. Of course, he had off-the-field issues that he ultimately sorted out, made himself a much better person. But on the field, he has been adored by this fan base. And nobody wants to see him struggle the way he does. Everyone, while they would be sad, it would be much less sad to see Ben go off on a high note, ideally with the Steelers winning the Super Bowl, than them going 6-11 and and that being the last season he plays in the NFL. Nobody wants that. Nobody wants to see Ben Roethlisberger end his career like that. Of course, he's probably going to end up in the Hall of Fame. There's no question about that. But nobody wants their last season to be as poor as what Ben Roethlisberger has shown over these first three games. So just like everything else that I've talked about already with the run game, with the offensive line, he's got to turn it around quickly and there's no time to waste. It's a situation where Roethlisberger and the Steelers, they're on borrowed time in terms of the season and Roethlisberger's career. The defense that the Steelers team has right now is arguably one of the better defenses that Ben Roethlisberger has played with. Of course, the early 2000s, that defense was very strong. Even as late as 2009 when the Steelers won their last Super Bowl over the Cardinals. Then, of course, 2012, 2013, things kind of hit a rough patch. And that rough patch continued even as recent as three years ago, 2017, 2018, was the start of the turnaround for the Steelers' defense. I take that back. It was mainly just 2018 because 2017 was the wildcard weekend loss to the Jacksonville Jaguars that I will not speak more about because it still gives me PTSD to this day. But 2018 was really the revitalization of a strong defense in Pittsburgh. And then in 2019, traded for Minka Fitzpatrick, acquired Joe Hayden before the season started, and the defense got even stronger. So if Ben Roethlisberger and the Steelers' offense as a whole can figure it out, and this team runs on all cylinders, it's going to be a very good Steelers team. But again, it's a question of what if. And is it a matter of what if the Steelers turn it around? What if they don't turn it around? What if this is it for Ben? There's so many unknowns at this point, but if things continue to trend the way they are now, then yes, Ben's career is over. Yes, this season is over, and it's going to be much sooner than anyone anticipated in both regards with Roethlisberger's career and also the season as a whole, because again, this was supposed to be a season that 
the Steelers had a realistic opportunity to compete and a realistic opportunity for them to go out and try to win a Super Bowl. And it has not been shown whatsoever. And you question at this point how the Steelers managed to win against Buffalo, against Josh Allen in Buffalo. Everybody thought that was going to be a high point of the season, and then now it seems so far away. You're listening to the Three Rivers Talk Show here on the Bethany Online Radio. We come back looking at the Pittsburgh Penguins with an inside sneak peek at the roster for tonight. Malkin, Latang, and Brian Rust entering the final years of their contracts, and Sidney Crosby starting to skate right here on the Three Rivers Talk Show.
Welcome back, everyone, to the Three Rivers Talk Show for the latest now with the Pittsburgh Penguins. Mentioned before the break, first preseason game tonight at home against the Columbus Blue Jackets. Looking at the roster for the team this evening, of course, I mentioned last week about goaltender Philip Lindbergh being one of the goaltenders to watch this preseason. And sure enough, Mike Sullivan naming him in the squad for tonight's contest. Sullivan stating that Jory and Lindbergh will split time in the crease here tonight. My guess being that Jari will play the first period and a half, Lindbergh getting the last period and a half. Now, there are some veterans in this lineup mixed in with rookies, of course. We get Sam Pauline, Nathan Legare in as the rookies, the big-name rookies for that matter. We also get some experienced veterans in Kasperi Kapanen. We get our first look at Danton Heinen, a return of Dominic Simone, Evan Rodriguez, of course, thrown in there as well. Brian Boyle, of course, brought in on a professional tryout contract, getting his first preseason action. Defensively, a lot of common names, Chad Ruedel, John Marino, P.O. Joseph, Yusa Rikula and Mark Friedman, defensemen that are fringe NHL players, getting the opportunity as well. The thought of just having hockey back is very exciting. Seeing this roster is very exciting because, again, there's a lot of talent in those names that I read off, whether it's a veteran in here on a professional trial contract, a veteran that is almost a shoe-in to make the roster, or a rookie at any position trying to make their stamp tonight and solidify a roster spot or create a competition for one of the roster spots is very ecstatic. And I'm ecstatic getting to see Sam Pauline and Nathan Legare go out there and compete for the Penguins in preseason. Legare coming into training camp slimmer and faster than ever before. So he has already shown off the ice that he's prepared for this season, pushing for a spot in the NHL. And I know with Legare, with Pauline, I talked last week about the odds of them making the NHL roster are slim. Of course, At this point, I still believe that. I think it's a big uphill battle for them. It's going to be an uphill battle for them, along with Philip Hollander, the remainder of preseason and the remainder of training camp. They ultimately may not even make it to the end before being assigned to Wilkes-Barre Scranton, but they're going out there and competing proving to the coaching staff that they are capable of getting an NHL spot. The odds are very low, certainly not impossible for them, but a good showing tonight could lead to Mike Sullivan having some early impressions of them in a positive manner compared to someone like Brian Boyle or someone like Evan Rodriguez, who you know you're going to get from them and Mike Sullivan's going to want to turn to 
the youth and the upside that Pauline, Legare, and Hollander potentially bring to the table. So, in terms of players to watch tonight, definitely Pauline, definitely Legare, of course, already went into details with them. Dan Heinen, another forward to look at, one of the main free agency signings that the Penguins brought in this season, this offseason rather. Ron Hextall believing that Danton Heinen can return to his form over the past couple of seasons, has fallen off a bit, but is certainly capable of being a consistent goal scorer when given the opportunity. And Heinen, just 26 years old, drafted in 2014 by the Bruins, certainly having time in the NHL to turn it around. He scored 16 goals for Boston in the 2017-2018 season. He did it once. He can certainly do it again, just needing to find that right rhythm, the timing, and chemistry with his line mates. So it'll be a good opportunity now for Danton Heinen to make his first appearance as a Penguin, go out there and show to the coaching staff, to the fans, that you can get back on that pace of scoring between 15 and 20 goals a season whether you're on the third line, the second line, or wherever you may be. Defensively, P.O. Joseph, one of the big ones to watch out for. We know what John Marino is going to bring to the table, which, of course, is a positive thing. John Marino, a very skilled defenseman that Jim Rutherford practically stole from the Edmonton Oilers, only giving up a late-round draft pick. Chad Ruido, we know he's a consistent 6th or 7th defenseman in the NHL. Mark Friedman, kind of similar to Chad Ruiu, but not quite there in terms of talent. And then Yusa Rikula, just someone that the organization keeps around fighting for roster spots. So really on defense, the only one to watch for is P.O. Joseph, just because of the excitement that he brings to the table. He was very solid in his short stint with the Penguins this past season. Of course, going back down to Wilkes-Barre-Scranton to continue his development, now looking to make that final push to stay on the NHL roster for ultimately the remainder of his career. Certainly more than capable of doing so. And then the question becomes, if he is ready to make the jump to the NHL, what do the Penguins do with their defensive structure? Because you have four left-handed defensemen in Latang, Malkin, or not Malkin, I'm thinking too far ahead, Latang, Pedersen, and Matheson. You have those three plus Joseph. And so would there be a rotation? Would you... Pick one to scratch and keep scratching them unless there's any changes. It's going to lead to a lot of questions for Mike Sullivan. Now, leading into the next segment where I am looking at Evgeny Malkin, Chris Letang, and even Brian Rust. All of them have one thing in common, which is that they are entering the final year of their contract. Malkin Latang both... 35 years old, Brian Rust, much younger. So 
rust extension will certainly happen for the Penguins. We all know General Manager Ron Hextall would not allow Brian Rust to leave in free agency with the talent that he brings, how well he plays with Sidney Crosby. But for Malkin and Latang, the question for them becomes whether or not they get an extension. And while I believe that Ron Hextall will ultimately offer them an extension, it may not be a long one, somewhere between a two- to three-year deal. But, of course, Latang has had his moments of strong play. He's had his moments where his play has been very poor. Evgeny Malkin, same thing. And now he's missing at least the first two months of the season with this injury. So you don't necessarily know what you're going to get out of him once he returns on a freshly repaired knee and how well he will produce, especially in the beginning. Now, the only way that this would benefit the Penguins, especially in Malkin's case, is that if he doesn't produce as well as he has in the past, especially in the beginning after returning, that would help the Penguins because he would ultimately end up getting paid less in the extension. Now, Evgeny Malkin's certainly not the one to be out there hungry for money. Deserves to be paid, of course. But if the Penguins offer him, we'll say, $6.5 million per year for three years, the odds of him accepting it would be very high because he's loyal to the Penguins, and he's not going to sign for someone like Detroit or for Buffalo for an extra $2 million a year. That's not what he's about. And the same with Latang. If Latang has a lot more bad moments than good, it will drive his price down. And the Penguins will be able to re-sign him for much cheaper. But then on the flip side, Ron Hextall may see things as well Chris Letang is struggling. He's not performing well. We could move on from him, and we still have three solid left-handed defensemen in Pedersen, Matheson, and P.O. Joseph. Or if Malkin struggles, can't get anything going, even well after he's been back from the surgery, Ron Hextall could be willing to move on from him. And so, in a way... Yes, it does break up that core of Crosby, Malkin, Latang. And while the Penguins' contention window may not be over at that point, it would certainly be diminished. And it's going to be a bit of a shock for Penguins fans if that happens. Again, I'm leaning towards Malkin, Latang ultimately getting, getting an extension from the Penguins and from Ron Hextall going to probably be between two to three years, but those negotiations will take place in the offseason. So it's still a ways away, plenty of time for the players to prove one way or another whether or not they should stay, have the players prove that they want to stay, and then for the Penguins organization to make their decision one way or another. Now, the third piece of that core in Pittsburgh, Sidney Crosby 
has resumed skating. Of course, not participating in any contact drills yet whatsoever. And really just skating on his own. But it's still a sign that he's working his way back. And it's possibly sooner than what anyone would have expected. I mean, it was just two weeks ago, maybe, at most, that Crosby underwent the procedure, and he's already skating on his own. The surgery took place September 8th. So that would be three weeks from from Wednesday. So I guess that's about halfway through his projected time frame of recovery, but just something about it seems much faster than what it truly or than what is expected. And of course we know Crosby tends to do that with injuries where he pushes himself back to return as soon as possible. So prior to it we may have thought Crosby was only gonna miss five games and now that number might be reduced to three. So every game that the Penguins get with Crosby that they didn't anticipate getting with him is a win in their book, and it's going to ultimately help them push for that Metropolitan Division crown. Now, that may seem like a no-brainer that having Crosby makes your team stronger, but those two games, those three games that you now have with Crosby that you didn't think you would have, can be the difference maker. For instance, it may take Crosby three games to get acclimated once again to the speed of play. So if he comes back three games sooner than expected and it takes him games four, five, and six to get adjusted, then that's much better than it taking him games 10, 11, 12 to get adjusted. So then now he has more time to contribute offensively, contribute defensively, and help the team win games when he's at his highest level. That's where the Penguins organization is going to be at their best. And if by some chance Malkin's timeline speeds itself up, then the sooner he returns, the better the Penguins are going to be. But... At this point, I still don't see Crosby returning before the opening night. As much as we all would like that to happen, it's just simply not going to. Because the Penguins run Hextall, they're not going to push Crosby to come back until he's 100%. Just like with any star player on any sports team, you don't want to push them to come back too soon and run the risk of re-aggravating that injury. Because then if that happens, the organization looks bad for forcing that player to return, and then that player ultimately has to miss more time that they shouldn't have had to miss had things been healed properly. It's going to be a bit of a rough patch for the Penguins at the start, regardless of how many games they're out with, they're out Crosby, they're out Malkin. But the depth that the organization has, the way that Mike Sullivan coaches, 
and of course a brilliant general manager in Ron Hextall is certainly going to be able to get the job done. I can almost guarantee that. Can't completely guarantee it, but I can almost guarantee that because Mike Sullivan wouldn't have been named to be the head coach of Team USA without his coaching at the at the Pittsburgh Penguins. The success that he's had, the way that he's allowed teams to win despite injuries, Ron Hextall wouldn't have gotten the Penguins job if he didn't have the prior success he did with the Flyers, with the Kings, especially in Philadelphia and the way that he drafted getting those players that are now helping the Flyers to be competitive, not quite making the playoffs yet, but trying to work their way back. Those players, of course, the big two in Carter Hart, Ivan Provorov. But again, Ron Hextall would not be where he is now if he didn't have the capabilities of turning things around when it went south. He wouldn't be in the position he's in now if he wasn't capable of finding players to address certain needs within a team. That's why these coaches, these general managers, are in the roles they are because they have trust in each other and they're trusted by Mario Lemieux and Ron Burke. Whether or not they have Crosby on the ice, whether or not they have Malkin on the ice, or even Chris Letang, whether or not he's out there on the ice. The Penguins can win games without them. Malkin missed a ton of time last season. The Penguins won the Eastern Division in the reorganization of the 31 NHL teams at the time. They were able to win that division with the most games lost due to injuries. That doesn't happen by luck. And you can say, well, the Penguins had the easy schedule at the end, but their schedule was extremely hard in the beginning. So you're playing the same teams the same amount of times. It doesn't really matter when you play them because you still got to play them at some point. And the Penguins still found a way to be successful. You're listening to the Three Rivers Talk Show here on the Bethany Online Radio when we come back, the final segment looking at the Pittsburgh Pirates as their low affiliate wins the championship. Michael Chavis returning to the big league soon and projecting the 2022 starting rotation way too early right here on Bethany Online Radio. To another band back again Something keeps putting them through Me, I've been watching more than 15 years And hasn't changed a bit People keep talking about a different line But it never seemed to fit This is a song
Welcome back, everyone, for the final segment of today's episode of the Three Rivers Talk Show. For the latest now with the Pittsburgh Pirates, mentioned before the break that their low-A affiliate, the Bradenton Marauders, winning the low-A Southeast League Championship, defeating the Tampa Tarpons in that contest. Now, the Marauders at one point had their backs against the wall, but they were eventually able to see themselves through. Now, of course, the Marauders wouldn't be in this position without the prospects that Ben Charrington has acquired because there is a lot of talent down there in Bradenton. Logan Hoffman, Eddie Yeen, Andy Rodriguez, Hudson Head, those are just some of the few big-name prospects in the Pirates organization playing for the Bradenton Marauders that will more than likely see themselves start the year next year at High A Greensboro. High A Greensboro playing for the championship this evening. So hopefully we'll have good news to report about their success or potential success on Friday. But the future is definitely bright for the Pirates because you have that championship now down in low A with Bradenton. Greensboro looking to win the high A East championship tonight where 2020 draft pick Carmen Mlodzinski is taking the mound for Greensboro. You have these young prospects that are performing at such a high level at their respective level in the farm system. And it just goes to show that they are capable of playing in the pressure situations of baseball in that championship where it's a winner-take-all, Game 7 of the World Series type of situation. Now, 
of course, these prospects have ways to go in terms of development, but they're going to continue to get better and slowly but surely push their way up to the major leagues and allow the Pirates to have a legitimate core of prospects. Much of the roster now in Greensboro is going to start the season at Altoona, which will allow the Altoona Curve an opportunity to compete for another championship. There's a little bit of a lull in terms of talent right now at the AAA and AA levels for the Pirates because the prospects that have been brought in under Ben Charrington, they haven't gotten to that point yet of reaching double and triple A. We just saw a handful of prospects get promoted up to triple A, including O'Neill Cruz, Ronzi Contreras, just the other day. It was last Monday that their promotion was discussed on here. But those guys, of course, the season being almost over for the Indianapolis Indians, they're making an impact, but it's too little too late at this point. So now that you have those couple that are going to start the season at AAA, unless, of course, they have an absolutely lights-out spring training next season and ultimately get called up to Pittsburgh, they're going to have that impact on the Indianapolis Indians and allow them to be more competitive The players in Greensboro, of course, moving up to Altoona. Those in Bradenton moving up to Greensboro. The contention window continues to draw closer for the Pirates, and they're not done adding to the farm system because unless they somehow rip off six wins in a row to end the season and raise their record significantly, they're going to have a top-five draft pick once again next year, which is just going to continue to make their farm system better and have that much more talent in the next three to four seasons. Hopefully sooner rather than later, but that being the estimated time window at this point. Now, Michael Chavis is set to return soon for the Pirates. Chavis acquired from the Red Sox in exchange for Austin Davis, a left-handed reliever at the trade deadline. Chavis, an infielder that Ben Charrington knew quite well from his time with the Red Sox organization, was hitting at a very consistent line prior to his injury here in Pittsburgh, has dominated down in Triple Indianapolis in his rehab assignment. When he started in AAA Indianapolis after being acquired by the Pirates was absolutely dominant in AAA. So Derek Shelton has already mentioned that Michael Chavis will be set to rejoin the team tomorrow when they come back after the game concludes this afternoon that they're playing in Cincinnati to make up for a game rained out last week. But... Michael Chavis will have six more games in a Pirates uniform to make that impact and to solidify his spot as a starting infielder in 2022. I truly believe that Michael Chavis has both the offensive and the defensive skills to be the Pirates' starting second baseman next season. 
of course, we don't necessarily know what's going to happen with the shortstop position, who will return, who will man that. First base more than likely will be Colin Moran, but of course that could change. Third base is locked down by Key Brian Hayes, but I would not be surprised to see Michael Chavis at second base in 2022 because of the consistency that he brings to the plate, the consistency that he brings defensively. And, of course, from time to time, he'll flash the leather, make a spectacular play, whether it's a diving grab or making a pick that nobody thought he would make on a ground ball that takes a bit of a crow hop. But Michael Chavis is a player that is going to have an impact right now will allow the Pirates to slowly get better. I know I've talked about this a lot, but last season in the 60-game year, Pirates went 19-41. and 41. Every game that season basically counting as 2.7 games in a regular season. So the Pirates finishing last season with 19 wins, that translates to 51 wins in a full 162-game schedule. So a 51-111 and record, if you include the loss today against the Cincinnati Reds because the Pirates are trailing 13-1 to through seven innings, that puts the Pirates at 58-98. Even if they were to lose out, they would go 58-104. That'd be a seven-game improvement. Of course, would I like there to be more improvement than that? Absolutely. But it's still a bit of an improvement over last season. So Michael Chavis will allow them to have even more improvement, especially in terms of him being consistent on both sides of the ball. Now, where much of the consistency is going to come from for next season to allow the team to compete for as long as possible prior to the trade deadline to allow the team to continue to improve is really going to be in terms of the pitching, the bullpen and the rotation. Of course, both are very chaotic right now, but we're going to look at a way too early prediction for the Pirates rotation in 2022. So as of right now, I have three starters on the Pirates roster that pretty much have a spot locked up. Stephen Brault, Dylan Peters, and Bryce Wilson. Now, Brault has not pitched much this year, so 2022 will be a bit of a redemption year for him to go out there and pitch consistently as a starter and show that he can get back to his consistent ways on the mound. He was usually always sitting between a 350-360 ERA when he was really attacking the zone and really working through innings at a quick pace. Dylan Peters has been very successful since he was called up from AAA Indianapolis. He was acquired from the Los Angeles Angels, has since pitched very well for the Pirates over the course of just a handful of starts, but at the rate he's going, he arguably has one of the better ERAs 
right now in the organization, and he's not even on the active roster because he's currently injured. And so for Peters to come back next season fully healthy, ready to dominate, it's going to allow the Pirates to have improvement in the rotation. Of course, Peters, in his time with the Pirates this season, a 371 ERA over six starts. Not a whole lot in terms of sample size, but will be able to have an early lead in terms of solidifying a rotation spot going into spring training. And then, of course, the other one being Bryce Wilson. Now, I understand Bryce Wilson has not had the success that most fans would have liked to see him have coming over from Atlanta in the Richard Rodriguez trade. Bryce Wilson having some strong moments, but over the last several starts has really got hit hard. His ERA north of five, knocking on the door of six. But Bryce Wilson, just 23 years old. So he will get that opportunity simply because of him only being 23 years old. And there's plenty of time for him to turn it around because he's still working through some development at the major league level, which is why I see the Pirates almost 100% locking him in to the rotation, allow him to work through some things. If they've allowed Mitch Keller to continue to work through things in the rotation for multiple seasons, then they're going to more than likely give that same type of treatment to Bryce Wilson, who at this point is two years younger than Mitch Keller. Now, the final two rotation spots, I have four contentions or four players contending for those two spots. Mitch Keller, JT Brubaker, and then two potential free agents out of six that I will touch on here momentarily, but Keller, Brubaker, not being guaranteed spots in my rotation at this point. Mitch Keller, simply because he's been given ample opportunities to prove that he can be a major league starter. Hasn't shown it whatsoever. Even got optioned to Triple A Indianapolis to try and work through some things and regain confidence. He doesn't pitch with confidence outside of his fastball. The fastball location at times is poor, leaves it way too much over the plate, which is why it gets clobbered out of the park for a home run. And he doesn't use his breaking balls with confidence either or any of his off-speed pitches. And then JT Brubaker, he, I'm not guaranteeing him a spot either at this point because he gave up so many home runs this season that it was truly incredible. I felt like I was watching 2019 Trevor Williams and 2019 Chris Archer because they because he gave up so many home runs in a similar way that they gave up so many home runs. Now, the six free agents that I have as potential options for the Pirates to acquire, Julio Tehran, John Gray, Stephen Matz, Dylan Bundy, Eduardo Rodriguez, Alex Wood. Three lefties, three righties. Now, Eduardo Rodriguez, Alex Wood, two of the more popular options. They'll get lucrative offers from other teams. They would require a much more significant contract than the other four that I mentioned. Of course, 
I feel like I've been saying for at least the past two years that Julio Tehran would be a good fit for the Pirates. He's the definition of consistency. Always between a 320 and 360 ERA, one way or another at the end of the season. John Gray, Stephen Matz, Dylan Bundy, pitchers that are either very consistent in that same ERA range as Julio Tehran, or they find themselves in a spot where they could potentially be bounce-back candidates, reclamation-type projects for the Pirates that could ultimately work out similar to the way that the Pirates have tried to do that in the past. Again, this is a way-too-early prediction for the rotation. It's a way-too-early prediction of potential starting pitchers that the Pirates could or should sign, but they will absolutely need to make some changes in the rotation and the bullpen, but today just looking at the rotation. You're listening to the Three Rivers Talk Show here on the Bethany Online Radio. Once again, thank you all for tuning in today. Be sure to tune in on Friday at 3 o'clock for the latest with your Pittsburgh Steelers, Pittsburgh Penguins, and Pittsburgh Pirates. Have a great day, everyone.